Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today is day 53 of the Occupy Wall Street movement. And to begin with, I'd like to thank some of our fellow saloners who made donations to help with the expenses here in the salon, either through a direct donation or by paying for a copy of the audiobook edition of my pay-what-you-can novel, The Genesis Generation. And these wonderful people are Duncan M., Alexander H., Thomas R., Revelyn J., Katrina F., Arwen O., and Tommy S. So, Duncan, Alexander, Thomas, Revelyn, Katrina, Arwen, and Tommy, well, uh, hey, thank you all ever so much. Your help is very much appreciated. And one more huge thank you goes out to Dennis Berry and the Futique Trust, which is the trust that is managing the estate of Dr. Timothy Leary. As you know, Dennis has made all of Dr. Leary's audio recordings available to us here in the salon, and so far I've played about 40 of them, uh, and there's still many left for us yet to listen to. But on top of that, this past week we received a significant grant from the Futique Trust, and as a result, I am very pleased to confirm that the Palenque Norte lectures at Burning Man are definitely going to take place at next year's festival. As you know, I haven't been able to afford to attend the burn since 2007, and so the lecture series has been dormant since then. But seeing as how next year is 2012, and now that a good part of our expenses have been covered, well, we will once again be able to gather on the playa and uh, for some afternoon lectures and conversations, and with luck I'll also see you there. So, again, my heartfelt thanks and love go out to Dennis and to the Leary family for making this possible. And one more big thank you goes out to the Grammy-nominated and internationally acclaimed recording artist, Constance Demby, who some have called a 21st century Mozart. It is therefore quite an honor for Bruce Damer and myself that Constance has offered to perform at our 28th of January workshop in L.A. And like Bruce and myself, Constance is also doing this for free. In, uh, in order to keep the cost of the event down, we're all even paying our own expenses to be there. As you know, the cost for the one-day workshop is only $40, and ticket sales are going to pay for the facility, a lunch for everyone there, and a shuttle service that uh, will take you from the free parking lot to the facility where the workshop is taking place. Now, there's only room for about 70 people, and... So it's important that you reserve your spot today if you want to be guaranteed a seat for what we plan to make a very interesting day of lectures, music, and possibly even some never-before-seen video of Terrence McKenna. And while Bruce will be presenting part of this workshop in other locations during the year, the January 28th event is uh, the only one besides the Esalen workshop in June that I'll be at. Uh, and while the Esalen workshop will take place over the June 15th through the 17th weekend, and uh, while it also includes room and board for the weekend, it's uh, going to cost around $700, and uh, the size of the group is going to be restricted to about 24 people. So if you want to be involved in an ongoing conversation that Bruce and I are having about what we see taking place in 2012 and beyond, well, that uh, January 28th event may be uh, the best bet for you. Now, I know that January is still a long way off, but uh, on the planning side, we need to make deposits and put other arrangements in place long before then. So, 
In order to help a little in filling up our reservations early, I'm going to add a little something to the pot. Last January, during our latest move, I came across a few boxes of books that I'd forgotten about. They are copies of my out-of-print book, The Spirit of the Internet, which is now available in Kindle. So these paperback copies have uh, more or less become collector's items. Uh, (laughs) At least for collectors of works by unknown authors, I should add. (laughs) But uh, in any event, they are uh, something that isn't readily available anymore. And so for everyone who gets her or his $40 deposit sent in by the 15th of December of this year, that's a little over a month from now, well, for everyone who is registered by that date, I'll be giving them one of the few remaining copies of The Spirit of the Internet. And uh, by the way, if you are interested in that book and uh, you can't afford to get to our workshop, well, you can still read it for free on the net. So I hope that no one is feeling left out here. Uh, This is just a little thank you for those who sign up early and uh, help us out by doing so. And now let's get on with the show, as they say. Well, today we have a real treat, thanks to Joe Metheny, who, uh, by the way, is the host of his own podcast, uh, The G-Spot, among his many other activities. And thanks to Joe, we are now going to begin the first of several podcasts featuring the one and only Robert Anton Wilson. As you know, uh, it's quite difficult to get the rights to play one of Bob Wilson's talks because most of them, uh, including the one we're about to hear, are all copyrighted. But the reason we get to hear this one and the others that will follow soon is because that Joe Metheny is the owner of the copyright, uh, as well as being the producer of these talks. And what makes Joe's permission for us to play these talks even more significant is the fact that they are still being sold under a distribution agreement that he has with the Original Falcon Press, whose uh, website you will find at OriginalFalcon.com. And uh, if you've never been to their site, you may want to check it out as it has quite a few other books, videos, and audio recordings that I'm quite sure you're going to find very interesting. And I'll post a link to their website along with the program notes for this podcast, uh, which you can find via psychedelicsalon.us. So, uh, Joe and Falcon, uh, thank you all ever so much. Now, the recording that I'm going to play for you right now is titled, Robert Anton Wilson, The Lost Studio Session. And it came with an interesting story included that tells of how this talk was recorded in 1994, but then a series of events caused it to be lost until 2009 when Joe and a friend of his searched through hundreds of boxes in a storage facility before finding the master tape which we are about to listen to. And uh, it's a beauty. So, uh, where were you on that now mythic day when O.J. Simpson took his historic ride in a white Bronco? I can actually still remember watching that event on uh, television in a Florida cafe where I was having dinner that night. And uh, now I know where Robert Anton Wilson also was on that very day. He was in a recording studio in Chicago, recording the thoughts that you and I are going to hear in just a moment. I'm not really sure uh, how to introduce this talk, uh, which actually is a series of eight short vignettes about a wide range of topics. For example, uh, Who but Bob Wilson would be able to combine the idea of remaking the King Kong movie but starring Rush Limbaugh as King Kong and Hillary Clinton in the Fay Ray role? (laughs) And then go on to come up with a very novel idea about how popes are actually elected. And while there is a great deal of humor in Bob Wilson's talks, well, to me they also give us a hint of his true genius. So let's join him now. 
You know, in Zen they say uh, enlightenment consists of recognizing everything as nothing special. I got a nice exegesis on that last weekend from Al Wang, the Tai Chi master. He said, nothing special, just another lousy sunrise. And if you can look at the whole world that way, nothing special, just another lousy sunrise, just more rain, just more food, you got to put your clothes on, you got to drive your car, nothing special. Then, then you've achieved uh, Buddhist enlightenment, nothing special, just another lousy sunrise. I I test myself by listening to Rush Limbaugh. If Rush Limbaugh seems like nothing special, I feel I'm getting close to Buddhahood. Unfortunately, Rush Limbaugh very seldom seems like nothing special. He seems like something obnoxious. And so I know I haven't, I haven't achieved Buddhahood yet, so I listen to him more often to try to develop the ideal Buddhist detachment. It's sort of like hitting yourself with a knobby stick until you don't feel anything. Then you know you've achieved detachment. And uh, lately, uh, his major the passion is Hillary Rodham Clinton, who has a wonderful name, by the way. When, when uh, Before Bill ran for president, she was Hillary Rodham, which is a name that sounds like a railroad train going away. Hillary Rodham, Hillary Rodham, Hillary Rodham. And then when he ran for president, because the, she was suspected of being a liberated woman, God forbid, she changed it to Hillary Clinton, which sounds like a train coming closer. Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton. Now that he's elected, she's become Hillary Rodham Clinton, which sounds like a train crossing a shaky bridge. Hillary Rodham Clinton, Hillary Rodham Clinton, Hillary Rodham Clinton. But be that as it may, uh, she's, an, uh, she's a very cute lady and very bright, and uh, I like her a lot. And I, I'm fascinated by the way Rush Limbaugh rages and rants against her. And I finally realized it's not hatred. It's frustrated love. This man is in love with her, but he doesn't know how to express love. It's the most tragic love affair since King Kong and Fay Ray. And you can see the physical resemblance between both of them. Rush has a lot in common with King Kong, and Hillary has a lot in common with Fay Ray. And uh, the thing, the tragedy of King Kong is that he could never express his love. He tried to, but he didn't know how. Uh, when you first see the film, you think he's attacking Fay Ray. Then when you see it over a few hundred times, like most of us have, you realize Kong is always trying to express love, but he doesn't know how. That's because he's lived his whole life behind a wall with a bunch of dinosaurs. And it's the same with Rush Limbaugh. He grew up among Republicans, which is like living your whole life behind a wall with a bunch of dinosaurs. So when he tries to express love, it comes out sounding like a little boy's spite. It sounds like, like hatred, but it's really frustrated love. And who can blame him? I mean, don't we all have a yen for Hillary? Anyway, uh, one of these days they're going to walk into the studio and find him there dead with uh, French fries and Big Macs and malted tra chocolate malted all over the place. That's because he d dislikes the AMA. He believes all their health rules are more liberal propaganda. Anything that interferes with his appetites or prejudices are, are liberal propaganda and oppose family values. You know what family values means. That's hating the same person.
people your grandfather hated. Anyway, they're going to find him there with all this junk food dead, and somebody from the AMA is going to walk in and say, well, the junk food finally killed him. And then Robert Armstrong will walk in and say, no, it wasn't the junk food. It was beauty that killed the beast. That's one of my alternative endings for King Kong. Remake it with Rush Limbaugh and uh, Hillary Clinton. Uh, another alternative ending I have in mind is we do it uncensored this time, and you can see King Kong's dong, which you never saw in the original. Most people have never thought much about how big King Kong's dong was, even, although it's in the back of all of our minds. If you stop to think about it, there's lots of jokes about it. We're just afraid to talk about it in public. We joke about it in private. It's a, the great allegory of the 20th century, and of course, the, the, the what's right out in the open, the most obvious thing, how could they do it is the one thing we never talk about publicly could they do it at all there's a little hint of that in uh, that question in the remake made by Dino De Laurentiis where Jessica Lange says be reasonable Kong it can't work between the two of us but uh, a French critic named Raymond Bernard wrote an essay based on comparative anatomy and mythology and concluded that uh, by comparative anatomy King Kong should have 30 inches but uh, given his size compared to the size of an ordinary gorilla but he rejects that after uh, demonstrating it on the grounds that Kong is not a creature in zoology but mythology he's an ithyphallic divinity in the family of Pan, Dionysus, Osiris all those old Mediterranean gods had a gigantic wangs, which are seldom shown in popular books on the ancient world. You've got to get into really scholarly works to find out. They were all shown with dicks three times the average size. The ancient Mediterranean belief seems to have been the greater the mass of the willy, the greater the divinity in dwelling. And so King Kong, Bernard figures, must have had three times as much as we'd expect. It gives him around six feet. And so you can understand the panic in New York when King Kong is on the loose. Uh, a gigantic gorilla in heat is terrifying enough, but a gigantic gorilla in heat with a six-foot wang is absolutely terrifying. No wonder everybody's screaming and running around. Uh, but, uh, you know, this, this ancient... Um, Mediterranean belief about divinity and dwelling in the willy, and the bigger the willy, the more divinity, has made me wonder who had the who had who had the bigger dick, King Kong or God? Uh, I decided King Kong because if you read Genesis, God walks around the Garden of Eden without knocking over any of the trees. King Kong couldn't walk through there without banging over half the things he ran into. He was so enormous. I figure God is about 18 feet compared to King Kong's uh, 60 feet. But uh, getting back to uh, ithyphallic divinities, as they're called in the anthropology books, this, I think, underlies the uh, Roman Catholic uh, doctrine that a woman can't be a priest. Uh, Protestants have uh, women ministers in uh, most of the Protestant churches now. There are women rabbis. There have been a couple of women Zen masters. All the other religions have moved with the times. But the Pope keeps insisting there can be no women priests because the priest represents Christ. And uh, the most important thing about Christ was that he had a willy. Uh, most people think the most important thing about Christ is that he represents love, forgiveness, endless compassion, noble ideas. But uh, the secret teaching within the Vatican seems to be that the most important thing about Christ was that he had a willy. 
and an absolutely enormous one it must have been for him to be the chief of all the gods. And uh, that's... Uh, uh, that's uh, probably why uh, the election of the Pope is surrounded with such secrecy. Every time a Pope dies and they have to elect a new Pope, they go into this solemn conclave where all the doors are locked. Nobody, nobody knows what goes on in there. It's all a big secret until some smoke comes out, which is the signal that they've uh, made, they've made a choice. I, I think uh, the, the way they do it is sort of like they cast the lead in a porno film. Everybody lays it on the table and the, and the, well, the pilgrim with the biggest musket wins. Because that, that goes back to this idea of the sanctity of the willy, which is so central to pagan, uh, Mediterranean, and Catholic uh, thinking. One of the things that fascinates me is the information explosion, as it's called. Uh, there's a French economist named Georges Andela who uh, converted everything into binary units, which you can do on a computer, and estimated how much information we had at the time of the birth of Christ, which is a Western imperialist way of looking at history, dating everything from the birth of Christ, but that's the way he did it, and he did provide us with some interesting figures. You take uh, I call this the jumping Jesus phenomenon, because Andela didn't use uh, didn't name his unit of information, so I decided it needed a name, and units are named after important people, like the Farad is named after Faraday, the Watt after Watt, the Volta after Volta, and so on. So I decided we should call the unit of information a Jesus. All the information we had in 1 AD, uh, which is the first unit Andalou used, I call 1 Jesus. Uh, the question is, how long did it take to double? It took 1,500 years. And by 1500 A.D., we had two Jesus, or twice as much information units, twice as many bits in computer terminology, twice as many bytes, actually. Um, uh, the, uh, right after that, in one breeding generation, 17 years, Martin Luther hung his 95 theses on the door of the church. Wait a minute, that's 95 theses, I beg your pardon. And we had the first successful Protestant revolution. In another breeding generation, 1534, uh, Henry VIII uh, started the second successful Protestant revolution. And the next 200 years represented continuous religious war in Europe. By 1723, Jonathan Swift made the very true observation, we have enough religion to hate one another, but not enough to love one another. Ask Salman Rushdie about that. Anyway, by 1750, information had doubled again, and most of the people, uh, the intelligentsia anyway in Europe, were getting sick and tired of these religious wars, and Freemasonry was invented as a secret society to unite people in spite of their religious differences, and the French encyclopedists were writing books about history without uh, giving religion any importance at all, discussing economics and other factors in history. And uh, we had four Jesus. And in the next uh, half a century, we had James Watt invented the steam engine, and we had the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, followed rapidly on the political level by the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the First Mexican Revolution, the Bolivar Revolutions in South America, the United Irish Uprising, which was the closest thing to a successful Irish Revolution until 1916, the whole world began turning over, and pretty soon the kings were reduced to just titular heads or abolished entirely. Uh, 
uh, capitalism uh, replaced feudalism, industrialism replaced agriculture, the whole world changed. That's what happens when information doubles. Just like the Catholic Church, hegemony over the Western world collapsed after the doubling in 1500. And the next doubling only took 150 years, and by 1900 we were living in an entirely different world, a world people in 1750 couldn't begin to imagine, except the wildest among them, like Condorcet, who predicted most of what happened. He's always listed as the most unrealistic of the French revolutionaries because he thought it would all happen in the next 20 years. Well, it took 150 years, but most of his utopian predictions came true. Uh, by 1900, uh, people were trying to get off the uh, air, uh, off the ground, and uh, by 1905, the Wright brothers did it. In 1900, quantum mechanics began. We were the first step towards the atomic bomb. The next doubling only took 50 years, and by 1950, we had twice as much information as 1900, or uh, 16 times as much as at the time of Christ. Uh, the, the information acceleration was itself accelerating. Uh, by 1950, it had doubled again to 32J, 32 Jesus, and we had had two world wars, the rise of fascism and the collapse, the rise of communism without its collapse yet. And uh, the whole world had changed. By 1950, everybody accepted change as natural and normal, and the, most people were beginning to ask, what kind of changes can we expect next? except for the conservatives who kept saying, how can we turn things back to the way they were in granddad's time? But, which you can never do. Once the genie is out of the bottle, you can't put it back in. Information intrinsically tends to produce more information. It breeds faster than rabbits. Because if I have one unit of information and you have one unit of information and we talk to each other, pretty soon we've got four units of information, not two, because they breed, they interact. Information sheds light on other information. Uh, that the doubling between 1900 and 1950 was the first time in history that a human being had, could live through a doubling of information. All the others were longer than a human lifespan. That one was well within a human lifespan. The next doubling only took 10 years, and by 1960, information was up to 64 Jesus. And uh, by then... Everybody was expecting uh, the change to accelerate uh, even faster, and we had a worldwide youth revolution, which nobody understood at the time, and nobody fully understands even yet. Uh, by 1967, information had doubled again, and by 1973, it had doubled again. Now, just imagine that. The first doubling took 1,500 years. Between 63 and uh, 67 and 73 was only six years for a complete doubling of the information we had. Uh, they're now starting to uh, wonder how a scientist can keep up with the knowledge in her or his own field. Uh, knowledge is doubling so fast. The last person to know all of mathematics was a Russian named Ostrovsky, who died in 1918. It's now estimated that somebody who devotes their whole life to mathematics can learn maybe 5% of all the published theorems. And uh, that'll draw, that figure will drop to 2% pretty soon. Every uh, information is just, uh, uh, well, to go back to my metaphor, multiplying like rabbits, so to speak, like rabbits in Australia. 
Uh, the latest estimate I've seen is by Dr. Jacques Vallée, who runs a computer company in Silicon Gulch. He says information is doubling every 18 months, or rather he said that in 1988. I assume that now, I'm um, in 93, it's doubling even faster every year, every six months. I don't know, but it, the, the, the rate is increasing. Now, every time information doubles, technology changes. Every time technology changes, society changes. Look how the steam engine changed society from an agricultural, monarchist, religious base to a democratic, industrial, uh, secular base. Uh, Look at how the atomic bomb changed the world. We came to live with dread and horror of our own governments, and we got to the point now where the world is gradually moving away from war. After 4,000 years of absolute enchantment with the excitement and fun of warfare, we're suddenly afraid of it. We know it can kill us, even if we're staying home and we're old enough to be uh, exempt. uh, The bomb might drop on us, and so the world is moving toward peace. It didn't surprise me at all when uh, Rabin and uh, Arafat fat shook hands on the White House lawn. Everybody's beginning to realize how dangerous war is to us, to the whole biosphere. Now the IRA, it's revealed, has been having secret negotiations with the British government. I was joking about that after Rabin and Arafat made their first step. I said, next will be the IRA and the British government. It happened even quicker than I expected, but that's the way it is. The curious thing is that a mathematician named Gordon has published a theorem that as information flow increases, unpredictability increases. That is, the world is getting more and more unpredictable. I heard Gordon present that paper at the Royal Future Society in 1989, and then I flew to Europe for a lecture tour, and in Zurich people were arguing about when the Berlin Wall would come down, and they said within 10 years. By the time I got to Cologne in Germany, people were saying within five years. By the time I got to Berlin, people were saying, it's going to come down in the next one or two years. Things are really changing fast. The day after I left Berlin, the wall came down. I just missed it. But I was lucky. A friend in Berlin sent me five pieces of the Berlin Wall as souvenirs to compensate me for missing Seeing coming, seeing it being torn down, I got the five pieces of the Berlin Wall in front of my statue of the Buddha to remind me of the Buddha's teaching. All things are impermanent. All lines are impermanent. All separations are impermanent. Every, t- every border in Europe or anywhere in the world, but I like to use Europe as an example because there are so many borders there which are disappearing now with the European Parliament and the movement toward a single currency. Every border in Europe represents a place where two gangs of domesticated primates fought until they were exhausted and drew a new line on a map. Wild primates mark their territories with excretions. Uh, Domesticated primates mark their territories with excretions of ink on paper, which are known as treaties or maps uh, that result from the treaties. And uh, all these borders, all these treaties, they're all breaking down. We saw a tremendous wave of hysteria in this country against NAFTA. But NAFTA is just part of the general tendency for all the borders to come down one by one. Uh, Perot was raving that there were six Mexicans following him around, planning to shoot him. I'm sure he thought they had mustaches, and I don't know why he didn't say so. I I think I know how Perot's mind works. And he could visualize these six Mexicans. They all had not only mustaches, but big, black, bristly mustaches. 
and they all talked like the bandits and who, who pretended to be federales at the end of Treasure of the Sierra Madre. We don't got to show you no stinking bodges. And that's the kind of hysteria among the people who can't understand why all the blotters are coming down everywhere. But that is the transformation the world is going through due to the information explosion, which is happening faster all the time. This is a doubling of information that I was talking about leading to unpredictability. Uh, this unpredictability in mathematics is technically known as chaos, and that's one of the fastest growing fields of math is chaos theory, which has been applied to virtually every science, uh, from economics to the traffic patterns in and out of Los Angeles, and uh, biology and even to physics. Uh, the fascinating thing about chaos theory is that I was one of the pioneers without even knowing it. Back in 1957, uh, two friends of mine named Malaclips the Younger and Ho Chi Zen were in a bowling alley in Yorba Linda, uh, the birthplace of Richard Nixon, and they uh, were arguing about why there's so much chaos in the world. And according to Ho Chi Zen, a chimpanzee walked in and said, Read Bullfinch. All this chaos is due to Aris, and then disappeared in a puff of green smoke. According to Malaclips, they figured it out themselves, and Ho Chi Zen just invented the miraculous talking chimpanzee to make this religion more attractive to the gullible. So they each excommunicated each other. Malaclips became the head of the Discordian Orthodoxy, and Omar uh, Ho Chi Zen became the head of the lunatic fringe. And as soon as I learned about this religion, I excommunicated both of them, and we were all popes of three different uh, factions of the Discordian society, which is uh, true to the spirit of Malaclips's original revelation, we Discordians must stick apart. We used to print cards that said the bearer of this card is a genuine and authorized pope, so please treat him right, good forever, guaranteed by the House of Apostles of Aris on the site of the few beautiful future San Andreas Canyon, San Francisco. Well, uh, that card has been reprinted quite a bit. It's in Malaclips's Magnum Opiate, the Principia Discordia, How I Found Goddess and What I Did to Her After I Found Her. It's also in uh, the novel Illuminatus by Bob Shea and me. And it's even in a serious sociological study called Drawing Down the Moon. Goddess Worship in America by Margot Adler, a sociologist who's the granddaughter of Alfred Adler, one of the three founders of modern depth psychology. She treats the Aresian Discordian revelation as a serious part of the pagan revival and prints the card. So anybody who wants to be a pope can just cut the card out of one of those books and have your own pope card. However, if you don't think you need credentials, you become a pope as soon as you hear me speak about this, because everybody who hears my voice is immediately pontificated. I have uh, This started when I was in Ireland. I lived in Ireland for six years, and at that time, the pope, uh, the one in Rome, the, the guy who thinks he's the only pope, he announced that bishops could give indulgences over television. And uh, Dublin has the most uh, argumentative and erudite atheists in the whole world because they were all educated by Jesuits. So they started writing mocking letters to the Irish Times asking question, theological questions like, 
if you haven't paid your TV license, you see in Ireland uh, as well as England, you have to have a pay a license for your TV. If you haven't paid your TV license, when the bishop gives the indulgence, do you get the indulgence or is it cancelled because your license isn't valid? Or an even tougher one, if you make a videotape of it and play it over and over, do you get perpetual indulgence? Well, while the Jesuits who were wrestling with those conundrums, uh, I got the idea, well, if they can give indulgences over TV, I can give pontificate so every time I appeared on TV, I announced that everybody listening to me was a Discordian Pope, absolutely infallible, has the right to excommunicate all the other Discordian Popes. And this vastly increased our membership. Handing out cards, we only had about 10,000 Popes. Since I've started doing pontifications on radio and TV, we've got close to 20 million Popes at least now. Uh, we're not going to stop until every man, woman, and child on this planet is an authentic Discordian Pope, and then let's start, uh, then let's see how that old Queen in the Vatican reacts when he's only one among the whole population of the Earth. We're all Popes together. The Discordian revelation, which the miraculous talking chimpanzee revealed, or which uh, Malaclips and Home invented themselves, comes from Bullfinch or from Hesiod. There was a, this is the doctrine of the original snub, and it explains all the chaos in the world better than anything in mathematical chaos theory. Or you can consider it an allegory of mathematical chaos theory. They were having a party on Olympus, and they didn't invite Eris because she was known as the goddess of chaos, confusion, discord, bureaucracy, and international relations. Those are the five different stages of chaos. You see, you start out with simple chaos, and then people start arguing about how to organize it, which leads to confusion. Then they start battling each other, which creates discord. Then they form a bureaucracy to control the chaos, and then they start interfering with other countries, which makes for international relations. Those are the five heights of uh, chaos. This is the law of fives, which is why the Pentagon, which is always messing with other people's politics, it's internet, it represents international relations of the highest form of chaos, and it's a five-sided building. Uh, we, we call the Joint Chiefs of Staff the Knights of the Five-Sided Castle, or the Order of Quixote. They, they are all sacred Discordian saints because they've done more to make the world chaotic in the last 50 years than all the other forces put together. Anyway, the... Um, uh, not being invited to the party, Reese made him an apple of beautiful gold, some say metallic gold, the greatest ore to be found in Cyprus. Others claim uh, it was Macapoco gold. But, but be that as it may, she threw the, she wrote on the apple Kalisti, which is Greek for to the prettiest one, and threw it into the party. And immediately three of the goddesses claimed it, Hera, Aphrodite, and Athena. Hermes claimed it too, you know about Hermes. But anyway, uh, the, the, let the such a spat that Zeus appointed a mortal named Paris and let, let him choose who was the prettiest one. And uh, they all tried to bribe him. Hera offered him uh, wealth, Athena offered him wisdom. And Aphrodite, who understood men better than either of those, uh, offered him Helen, the wife of Menelaus. Uh, he grabbed Helen and took off for Troy. Menelaus got royally pissed off, and that was the beginning of international relations. He got all the other Greek princes together. They formed an army, and they attacked Troy. And we've been involved in chaos, discord, confusion, bureaucracy, and international relations ever since, just because of the original snub. 
that's the ontological uh, part of Discordian. Uh, that's the esoteric or ontological part that anybody can understand. The exoteric part, the mysterious part, is based on the Siadistan affirmation, which was revealed by St. Gulick the Stoned, who was a roach, a cockroach, that is. And uh, St. Gulick revealed that all ideas are true in some sense, false in some sense, meaningless in some sense, true and false in some sense, true and meaningless in some sense, false and meaningless in some sense, and true and false and meaningless in some sense. And you will achieve supreme enlightenment. If you repeat this 666 times, you will achieve absolute supreme enlightenment in some sense. Well, the Discordian religion, as I say, is spread and spread. We've got millions and millions of popes, and we're getting mentioned more and more often. The sacred Discordian number 23 pops up in more and more screenplays. You see it on the covers of rock albums. It appears in rock songs. Uh, I think we're the world's fastest-growing religion, and we still remain absolutely esoteric because nobody has ever heard of us uh, in the the officialdom anyway. Thank God, if they ever hear of us, they'll probably decide we're a cult. And you know what happens to cults in this country? Look at the Branch Davidians. So it's best they don't hear about us. Out Out of all this chaos we're going through, or the rapid changes the world is being... uh, mutated through. Uh, Terence McKenna, for instance, has calculated this uh, rate of information and novelty is going to, in 2012, reach the point where information is doubling every day, and then by midsummer it's doubling every hour, and in December it'll be doubling every second, and then every millionth of a second, at which point we encounter a transcendental object and history ends. I don't know what the hell that last part means. Let, let Terence explain that himself. In all this chaos and rapid change, I I think I can see certain trajectories emerging. Uh, Human lifespan in ancient Rome was about 30 years. It didn't change much through most of history. With all the doublings of knowledge up to 1750, uh, the average lifespan of the working class was still less than 30 years. And uh, the aristocrats didn't live much longer. 37 years was average. In uh, 19th century England, uh, Engels uh, studied the statistics, and in his book, The Condition of the Working Class in England, uh, found that the average working class family only survived 37 years. By 1900, the insurance companies were keeping records, and life expectancy for all classes in the industrial democracies was 50 years. Uh, by the Second World War, it was up to 60 years. It was 73 years when I started writing about uh, life extension in the 70s. Now it's up to uh, 78 years. Uh, George Burns is 97 and has taken a booking to appear at a Las Vegas nightclub on his 100th birthday. And he was asked if he's sure that that'll come and that'll work out. And he says, well, if they're still there, I'll be ready. And uh, meanwhile, uh, there's more research on the immune system and uh, other things connected with longevity uh, right now than there has ever been. There are more scientists alive than there has ever been. Most people in longevity research, and I've interviewed a lot of them, expect a major breakthrough sometime in the next decade or so, the next couple of decades. 
A human lifespan will not be calculated in decades, but in centuries. Nobody knows how many centuries. This is still a wide open field. You get you get predictions like we can extend uh, human lifespan to 400 years. We can extend it to 700 years. Uh, some of the conservatives say 140 years. We just don't know. But the research that's going on indicates that most people are going to live a lot longer than they expect, especially since war is getting phased out as a uh, method of resolving conflicts. Uh, along with that, uh, Clinton is now pushing President Clinton, or Slick Willie, as uh, Rush Limbaugh prefers to call him, uh, uh, Clinton is the only president in my lifetime that I would like to have for dinner because I could carry on an intelligent conversation with him. He tries to hide his intelligence as much as possible. You've got to do that in American politics. But I heard him say counterintuitive one time in his speech. Anybody who can use the word counterintuitive and knows what it means uh, is a Rhodes Scholar, which as a matter of fact he is. Uh, of course, he's got to hide it as much as possible. In the early days of this republic, Jefferson, Adams, Madison, we, they were we're all intellectuals. We, this country elected intellectuals. Then we brought in a lot of cheap labor, and uh, they wanted to be represented by people of their own intellectual level, and it got to the point that by the time of Ronald Reagan, you had to act like an idiot to get elected because anybody with any brains was regarded with extreme suspicion. If you want to know why Reagan got the biggest uh, majority in American political history, just think there's nobody you can imagine who felt intellectually inferior to Ronald Reagan. You could go to the home for the feeble-minded and ask them, what do you think of Ronald Reagan? And they'd say, oh, we love him. He's a regular fellow, just like us. Boo. And I think George Bush was pretty smart. No morals, but a lot of brains. But he did his best to hide his brains. They all do. But Clinton, as I was saying before that digression, has proposed a joint Russian-American space station, which is something I've been urging since even before the Cold War ended. I thought it would be a good way to end the Cold War if we started cooperating in space. Uh, it's obvious that uh, space colonies are going to be built. Uh, Harry Stein, the engineer, has calculated there are 10 to the 100th power industrial processes that can be done cheaper in space. That means everything can be 10 to the 100th power cheaper than it is now. People are going to be moving into space to take advantage of that. And most of our communication technology is in space already. Most people don't realize every time you turn on the television, if you flip, uh, if you go channel surfing, uh, half of what you look at is coming to you from outer space by way of satellites. A heavy industry will be following communication industry into space to take advantage of all the things that can be done cheaper out there. Once you've got a lot of engineers out there, it's going to be like prison, uh, no women. Uh, they're going to get horny and angry and sullen, so they're going to have to be allowed to bring their families, and that means they'll have to be schools. And then they'll want, uh, of course, their own food. They'll have groceries, supermarkets. And then they'll want theaters and uh, uh, circuses. Pretty soon everybody will be going into space. Uh, some just temporarily, like circuses on their worldwide tours, will include a visit to the L5 space colony or L6 or whatever, or Proxmire. I, I'm well in favor of having a space station named Proxmire after the guy who was opposed space uh, research more vigorously than anybody else. I want people wandering around 25 years from now saying, why is this place called Proxmire? And then people will tell them about Senator Proxmire and they'll all have a good laugh. Yeah. <laughs>
Meanwhile, this, uh, all this longevity research is going on. You project forward the general trajectory of where things are going and the acceleration. We're going to have people, uh, not, maybe not this generation or the next, we're going to have people living hundreds of years and uh, breakthroughs and uh, uh, propulsion systems mean we're moving into a Star Trek world. People will be moving all over the galaxy, eventually out of the galaxy. And life extension will go on. Uh, research in that uh, will not suddenly reach a limit. Uh, we never do reach limits. That's one of the big fallacies of our time is the idea of limits. There are no limits. So eventually we are graduating from being terrestrial mortals to becoming cosmic immortals. We are becoming the gods that we imagined a long time ago. I think that's where evolution has been pointing as Nietzsche said, what is man? A bridge between the ape and the superman. A bridge over an abyss. I think we've passed over the abyss. Getting through the Hitler and Stalin eras and Auschwitz and Hiroshima and all those horrors, we've gone over the abyss. And now we are graduating into cosmic immortals, as startling as it sounds. That wasn't very funny, was it? But think about it. Uh, many people uh, always expect me to say something about the Illuminati since I uh, first became famous or infamous for a novel about the Illuminati I wrote with Bob Shea. And then to co compound my folly, I wrote a few more novels about the Illuminati on my own. The Illuminati was a secret society of the 18th century about which everybody disagrees because it was secret, and it was so secretive that nobody really can agree about what the secret was. Thomas Jefferson described them as enthusiastic philanthropists, which sounds like uh, high praise until you know that in the 18th century enthusiastic meant half crazy. Half crazy philanthropists is what Jefferson was calling them. That they've been accused of being atheists, uh, Kabbalistic magicians, sorcerers, Satanists, uh, communists, anarchists, and uh, uh, just Jeffersonian Republicans. Uh, Jefferson also said that if they had lived in America instead of Europe, they wouldn't have been a secret society. They could have propounded all of their ideas openly, protected by the First Amendment. They only had to be a secret society because no place in Europe had a First Amendment then. Uh, whether the Illuminati still exists or not is one of the questions I leave open in my books, and I'm not going to close it here. Let people figure that out for themselves. But then uh, they, what made them fascinating was they were a secret society within a secret society, an enigma inside a riddle, to paraphrase uh, Winston Smith or Winston Churchill or one of those Winston guys. The uh, the Illuminati were all recruited from Masonic lodges. It was a secret society within Masonry. This technique was copied in the 19th century by the Molly Maguires, which was an Irish terrorist group, sort of forerunners of the IRA, who were recruited within the Ancient Order of Hibernians, which was a secret society. Now, the Ancient Order of Hibernians, like the Masons, seems to be devoted chiefly to... Uh, benevolent activities and advancing one another's business interests. Uh, the Masons were advancing the interests of the, a certain class. They were the revolutionary class in the 18th century, the bourgeoisie who wanted to overthrow feudalism. 
Now they're the conservative class, the bourgeoisie was terrified of further revolutions, which explains why the typical 18th century Freemason was somebody like Jefferson, Voltaire, Ben Franklin, Mozart, well, all uh, uh, avant-garde revolutionary thinkers, and the typical Freemasons of today are people like J. Edgar Hoover and... Uh, and the Paydue crowd in Italy, who I'll come to in a minute. The Molly Maguires uh, uh, worked within the ancient order of Hibernians, which was a secret society of no nefarious character, which was just devoted to helping the Irish get established in this country against all the Anglo prejudice against the Irish, and they gradually took over a lot of political machines, and some of them they still run, especially in Boston and Chicago. The uh, behind, within the within the ancient order of Hibernians was the Molly Maguires, a terrorist outfit devoted to driving the English out of Ireland by any means necessary. They they were just copying the Illuminati, a secret society within a secret society. There's a good film about the Molly Maguires, and it's, it stars Sean Connery. You ought to look for it at your video store. And. Italy in the 1970s, another secret society was formed within a secret society. That was Paydue. Paydue was formed within the Grand Orient Lodge of Egyptian Freemasonry, which was founded by the mysterious Count Cagliostro, a chap who appeared in France in the uh, 1880s and uh, claimed to be 2,000 years old, performed the transmutation of metals turned lead into gold in plain sight of the Archbishop of Rouen and healed uh, many sick people just by touching them. Um, there are various theories about how Cagliostro's magic worked. Uh, the faith healing does work if you build up enough enthusiasm, or it works a large part of the time. As for transmuting lead into gold, any stage magician can do that. Uh, it just depends on distracting the <laughs> the attention of the, of the audience. Anyway, Cagliostro and uh, Orleon founded the uh, the Grand Orient Lodge of Egyptian Freemasonry, which has become more, which in the 19th century was involved in many democratic uh, revolutions against monarchy and feudalism. By the 1970s in Italy, the Grand Orient Lodge had settled down to being more or less conservative, and within it, Licio Gelli formed a secret society called Paidue, a secret society within a secret society, just like the Illuminati. Uh, Paydue managed to infiltrate 900 over 950 of their agents into the Italian government. The government fell when this was revealed in the newspapers. Uh, the first crack was when a member of Paydue uh, quit and put out a journal called uh, Servitore Politico, pardon my lousy Italian, and in it he uh, described a lot of the crooked deals Paydue was doing. He was shot down by machine gun fire in Rome right after that came out. Uh, Pope uh, John Paul ordered an investigation of the Vatican Bank and its connections with Paydue, and he was taken suddenly dead of a heart attack right after that. Funny coincidence. 
Pei Due turned out to be operating over 200 fictitious banks along with some real banks. The fictitious banks, which the Italian investigating magistrates called ghost banks, a name I like. It sounds like it comes right out of one of my novels. The ghost banks existed only on paper, but they were used for laundering cocaine money from South America because Pei Due had worked on an alliance with the mafia and the CIA as for the, the laundering of cocaine money to support the CIA's favorite dictators in South America. The money went through the World Finance Company in Miami, which was staffed by eight former CIA agents. A former CIA agent can be somebody who's left the agency, although that's very rare. Usually a former CIA agent is somebody who's still working for the CIA, but he's not on the books anymore. He's getting paid through a numbered Swiss bank account. Anyway, the World Finance Corporation took all this cocaine money and sent it to the Cisalpine Bank in the Bahamas, which was run by Archbishop Marchinkus, the manager of the Vatican Bank, and Roberto Calvi, the president of Banco Ambrosiano. Calvi was found hanging from a bridge in London on June 18, 1982, and they're still arguing about whether that was murder or suicide. He was wanted for laundering drug money and embezzling $55 million. Um, Archbishop Marchinkus was kicked out of the Vatican Bank and made mayor of Vatican City, and then as the scandal mounted, he was kicked out of there too, and he's back in Cicero, Illinois. Uh, the third big kingpin in this uh, outfit was Michele Sindona, a mafia lawyer, who was running quite a few imaginary banks too, along with the Franklin National Bank in the United States which uh, turned out to be another drug laundering operation. He was convicted in New York of 55 counts of stock and currency fraud. And then they extradited him to Italy, where he was convicted of murdering a bank examiner. He was about to go on trial for conspiring with Calvi and Jelly to overthrow the government and install a new fascist government when he was poisoned in his cell. Uh, the, most of the uh, Paydoué activities uh, were connected with the uh, Swiss banks run by the Grand Loge Alpina, which is the Swiss branch of the Grand Orient Lodge. The Grand Loge Alpina are the people Harold Wilson, the English Prime Minister, called the Gnomes of Zurich. Everybody else pronounces that Gnomes, but Harold Wilson believed the G should be pronounced. He said the Gnomes of Zurich, these Swiss bankers who all belong to the Grand Loge Alpina, these Swiss bankers control Europe by deciding who they're going to lend money to. If a government can't borrow money from them, it can't do what it wants to do. So you can only do, a government, according to Harold Wilson, can only do what the bankers want to let it do. So the real power is in the hands of the bankers. Other people have said that before Harold Wilson, but he specifically picked out the Grand Loge Alpina, which it turns out not only was intimately involved with the Pay Due banks and false banks in Italy and Latin America, uh, but with the Priory of Sion in uh, France, which is a group of French aristocrats who have allowed books about them to be published with the wildest imaginable stories. Uh, Gerard de Sed wrote a book called La Ras Fabuleuse, claiming the members of the Priory of Sion are descended from intermarriages between the tribe of Benjamin in ancient Israel and extraterrestrials from Sirius. 
Another book by Bajan, Lincoln, and Lee claims that the members are descended from Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene, who were secretly married and had a son who became the founder of the Merovingian dynasty in France. And they have long genealogies showing a lot of interesting people are descended from Jesus and Mary Magdalene including Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands, who founded the Bilderbergers, the group of financiers who meet every year very secretly and appear prominently in all conspiracy theories, and uh, Otto von Habsburg, the president of the Society for the United States of Europe, which has done so much to unify Europe, who is also, by the way, a Knight of Malta. The Knights of Malta are an honorary uh, group the Vatican uh, has uh, given special privileges to, uh, many uh, anti-Catholic uh, and, uh, historians regard the Knights of Malta as the Pope's secret police. There was one book claimed the Knights of Malta and the CIA work together continually in South America to maintain the landlords and the church in power and kill off all the peasants who object. Licio Gelli, in fact, the founder of Paidue, was uh, providing most of the ex-Nazis with false identity papers uh, and getting them jobs with the death squads in Central America. So when people ask me if the Illuminati still exists, I don't know, but things a lot like the Illuminati still exist, that's for sure. That's for damn sure. One of the great things about the Discordian revelation that every man, woman, and child on the planet is a fully uh, endowed pope as infallible as anybody else has been the, uh, we've encouraged the growth of other religions. Uh, for instance, the John Dillinger Died for You Society, founded by our uh, Pope uh, Horace Naismith. Uh, some claim he's the illegitimate son of John Dillinger. He won't affirm uh, or deny. But uh, the John Dillinger Died for You Society holds that uh, Dillinger is the uh, patron saint of our age because uh, he... Uh, even during the Depression, he didn't look for a government handout. He was self-reliant. He went out and got money his own way, a direct, honest way. And he left behind many wise sayings, such as never trust a district attorney's deal or an automatic pistol, or uh, you can get more with a simple prayer and a Thompson submachine gun than you can get with a simple prayer alone. Or his favorite saying, which he told, uh, to the essence of Buddhism, and he told this to many bank presidents, vice presidents, tellers, bank employees, lie down on the floor and keep calm. That really does contain all the wisdom of the Orient, if you think about it. Lie down on the floor and keep calm. And so the John Dillinger Died for You Society has unfortunately been fractured by disputes after a book came out, Dillinger Dead or Alive, which claimed the FBI shot the wrong guy and was so embarrassed they covered it up and gave up the hunt for Dillinger claiming they had killed him. And he's still alive in California, in Los Angeles, actually. So now the John Dillinger Died for You Society has the symbolic branch that says he symbolically died for us in that alley, even if he's physically alive in Los Angeles. And the revisionists who say he did die, but he has risen. And that's why he's living in Los Angeles. They seem to regard Los Angeles as heaven, which is what it looks like your first day there. After you've been there a few months, you find out it's more like hell. Uh, but another of our... Uh, uh, Discordian offshots is the uh, uh, 
Church of Fred Mertz Bodhisattva, which is based on the teaching that if you look at I Love Lucy reruns in an altered state of consciousness, and how you get into an altered state of consciousness is entirely up to you. The church does not take a stand on that. But if you're in the right state of consciousness, you'll see that Fred Mertz is speaking all the great mystic teachings of the ages. Uh, he seems to say nothing but uh, the, the stupidest possible remarks. But if you're in the right state of consciousness, everything he says seems incredibly profound. Like, huh? Uh, there was a Zen master who answered all questions by saying, quats? And Fred, they response to most things by saying, huh? Well, if you meditate on that, huh, it has as much meaning as quats. Well, the Moo and the other famous Zen koan. And, and then Fred says things like, I don't understand women at all. Sort of the confession of the intellectual bankruptcy of the last 3,000 years of patriarchy. And uh, then there is the um, uh, American coffee ceremony invented by the Java Crucians. Uh, the... Uh, this is, the, in all respects, the opposite of the Japanese tea ceremony, which uh, they feel is not suitable for Americans who just don't have a Japanese temperament. The Japanese tea ceremony has to be done with great mindfulness and care so that every single detail is seen as if you're on LSD. Uh, the American coffee ceremony is the opposite. You get up, you stagger to the kitchen, you throw some instant coffee into a cup. You can't bother with perc uh, percolating real coffee and all that. Just throw some instant coffee in a cup and hold it under the hot water uh, faucet until it bag, uh, until you got something that looks like coffee. You stir it with your finger because you can't be bothered looking for a spoon. And then you face the east and you take a hearty gulp. You face the east, the rising sun, and you invoke the sun god crying, Ra, Ra, Ra. And then you take a hearty gulp and you cry out passionately, God, I needed that. And you immediately come to a tremendous clarity. Your brain wakes up and it just keeps on tick, 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 tick. Your brain just keeps right on working until you get to the office when it stops, of course, like all people in offices. Then there is the, the Church of the Subgenius, which uh, has probably attained more fame than any of the other Discordian uh, offshots. Uh, this is based on uh, the teachings of J.R. Bob Dobbs, who... Uh, who issues no, uh, real Zen-type koans like "Don't just eat a hamburger, eat the hell out of it," or uh, you know, this this is the essence of the subgenius faith. Uh, you know how dumb the average guy is? Well, mathematically, by definition, half of them are even dumber than that. If you understand that, you're ready to start your own religion and become as rich as Bob or Rajanish or the Pope or any of them. A disciple, as Bob once told me in private, a disciple is an asshole looking for a human being to attach itself to. And there are millions of them out there. Look at Rajanish. He grew up a poor boy in India. Very poor. And then he read in the paper that Krishnamurti had come to this country and got so rich he was able to buy a Rolls Royce. And Rajanish said, I've got to go to America. It's full of seekers. Why, there's a seeker born every minute in that country. So he came over here preaching his line of gibberish, and he he, he got 93 Rolls Royces before they... Uh, uh, Krishnamurti only had one. Rajanish got 93 before they ran him out of the country. Uh, every time he got a new Rolls... People don't know why he needed 93 Rolls Royces. Why does anyone need 93 Rolls Royces? Well, the answer is every time he got a new one, he'd take a Polaroid of it, and he'd write on the back, fuck you, and send it to Krishnamurti. <laughs> That's how you play the Guru game. 
My favorite religion is actually Shinran Buddhism. I was married in a Shinran Buddhist church uh, 35 years ago, and uh, the great thing about Shinran is it's an offshot of Amida Buddhism. Uh, Amida was the Buddha who refused, refused to enter Nirvana until all sentient beings could enter Nirvana with him. And so he reincarnates for perpetually to bring everybody to uh, supreme enlightenment. And part of the teaching of Amida Buddhism is if you call on Amida Buddha once with true faith, that'll be enough. Even if you screw up this life entirely, in your next life you'll do better, and the life after that you'll do better until eventually you do achieve total detachment and nirvana. All you got to do is say in Japanese, Namu Amida Butsu, in the name of Amida Buddha. If you say it with true faith, you will eventually be saved. And uh, in the 12th century, a monk named Shinran meditated on this until his heart broke. He thought it was just not fair to those people who can't muster a true faith. There are some people who are always asking questions, never satisfied, always asking the next question, always a little bit skeptical. I'm one of them. And uh, we just can't manage true faith. We just can't, uh, we're always wondering, maybe there's an alternative, maybe there's another way of looking at it. And Amida, the Buddha of boundless compassion, could he possibly leave us out if he intends to bring all beings to perfect bliss and enlightenment? And Shinran decided that was impossible. So Shinran Buddhism is based on the teaching that if you say Namu Amida Butsu once, whether you have faith or not, it's enough. You'll be saved eventually. I think that is the most merciful, the most commonsensical, the most generous, and the most noble religion ever invented. Uh, at least it seems that way to those of us who are incapable of true faith <laughs> in the traditional sense. And so I have said Namu Amida Butsu with uh, some degree of faith and with a great deal of skepticism on numerous occasions. I've never managed total faith, but I like to say it because uh, Shinran says whether I believe it or not, it will work. And so I'd like to leave everybody with those words, Namu Amida Butsu. Say them once. And whether you believe it or not, it will work, and all your problems will be solved. It may take a thousand incarnations, but eventually you'll get there. And hey, we got lots of time! All my favorite philosophers are Irish, like Scottish Origina, who denied the reality of time and said all things are lights. And Bishop Barclay, George Barclay, after whom the city of Berkeley is named, because Americans don't know how to pronounce Irish names. It should be Barclay. Uh, Bishop Barclay proved the universe doesn't exist, but God thinks it does. And uh, William Rowan Hamilton, the great Irish mathematician, who proved that A times B does not equal B times A, contrary to all previous mathematical theory. And Jonathan Swift, who got into a great debate with Partridge, the astrologer, about whether Partridge was dead or alive. And you think Partridge had a distinct advantage in that debate, but Swift managed to win because every argument Partridge came up with, Swift was able to refute. His major proposition was just because a man claims he's alive doesn't mean we have to believe him necessarily. But uh, Sean Murphy of Dalkey, who inspired Professor Finnegan, is one of my favorites. Uh, nothing is known about Sean Murphy except his influence on Professor Timothy F.X. Finnegan, the inventor of uh, parapsychology, not to be confused with parapsychology. 
But uh, Sean Murphy, of whom all we know is a remark attributed to one Nora Dolan of Dalkey, who said, sure, the only hard work that Finnegan lad ever did was climbing back onto the bar stool twice a night after falling off it. But uh, Murphy uh, said to Finnegan one night in a Dalkey pub, sure, I've never seen an average day. I've never met a normal man or woman. And Finnegan had had 14 pints of Guinness at that point, and he suddenly saw the profundity. He called it Murphy's first fundamental finding. And all of his books of philosophy are devoted to the implications of this. There wasn't a single person in the pub who looked like an average Irishman. And going out on the streets, he couldn't find an average Irishman or an average Irish woman. He couldn't even find an average dog. And he couldn't find an... He, never, he realized he'd never seen an average day. He never saw a normal human being. Uh, he never saw a room in which the corners make perfect right angles geometrically. And so uh, the whole system of um, parapsychology, which is based on Murphy's first fundamental finding and the French philosopher Alfred Chary, who invented pataphysics, the science of non-repeatable events, uh, led uh, Professor Finnegan to invent parapsychology, the science of things that you see but you can't believe. And uh, one of the things he saw that he couldn't believe was uh, that nothing is normal. Uh, the normal, he decided, is purely an English invention. It derives from mathematics. The normal and the average are statistical abstractions that don't exist. And so he formed PSYCON, of which I am the American director, PSYCON, that's the Committee for Surrealist Investigation of Claims of the Normal. And uh, we claim, uh, Finnegan uh, claims, and I agree, and PSYCON has been crusading for years to demonstrate there are no normal people, any more than there are normal dogs, normal giraffes, normal events, normal days, average. Nobody is the average size. Uh, nobody is the average weight. Uh, these are these are all pure fictions. The normalists live in a world entirely of abstraction and fiction and metaphysical entities that cannot be found in the normal world of sensory, sensual space-time in which we actually live. So Professor Finnegan is offering a $10,000 reward to anybody who can produce an average human being or a normal day. And none of the normalists have been able to confront this challenge. They, they just can't find the average or the normal. It's purely abstract. The normal is that which none of us quite are. When I came back to this country from Ireland, I was astonished at all these ads by the Partnership for a Brain-Free America. No, they call themselves the Partnership for a Drug-Free America. I thought it was the Christian scientists who were behind it. But it turns out that there are people who don't know what a drug is. They're against some drugs, but they... They just feel if they said uh, the partnership for uh, freedom from some drugs, they'd sound kind of silly. So they claim they're against all drugs, but actually they are not doing anything at all to stomp out the use of penicillin, aspirin, antihistamines, uh, uh, Procardia, Prozac, most, uh, most of the, the heavy uh, drugs that, uh, that the medical profession is pushing on us all the time. They're just against some drugs. 
which is kind of ridiculous because we were supposed to have a war on drugs and meanwhile we got eight people who have been convicted of refusing to use drugs who are whose cases are under appeal on their way up to the Supreme Court. These are the only true partnership for a drug-free America. They're Christian scientists. They won't use drugs under any circumstances. Even if the medical profession insists that drugs are necessary to preserve life, they say life is preserved by faith and they won't take the drugs. So we, so we actually got a war against some drugs, which is a war for other drugs. So people are going to jail for using some drugs and other people are going to jail for refusing to use any drugs. And it's, it's, it's really crazy. And then they have these commercials. This is your brain on drugs. This is your brain on drugs with an English muffin. This is your brain on drugs with an English muffin and two slices of bacon. Where do they get this stuff from? And then uh, I, I started seeing these other ads. The first one I saw was in Penthouse. But they're in lots of magazines. Guaranteed drug-free urine. And uh, the, the, this is a place in Boulder, a P.O. box in Boulder, Colorado, which is a major mystery. I've been in Boulder. I've been in Boulder several times. It's beyond my comprehension how you can find drug-free urine in Boulder or within a hundred miles of Boulder. And then I discovered there are big cattle ranches there. Well, one of the great uh, achievements of the Neolithic age was they found out how to use every part of the cattle. They used the hoofs to make uh, to ornaments, they took the milk, they ate the meat, they did things with the horns, they used the hide for leather to make belts and shoes and so on. Nobody ever found a way to use the cow piss. Now somebody has found out a way to use cow piss. They're selling it through the mail, guaranteed drug-free urine. It doesn't say human urine, it just says drug-free urine. Because you're not going to find guaranteed drug-free human urine in the United States today. Everybody has tried a few. Uh, most cough medicines will register positive for heroin, even though they don't have heroin in them, but they're close enough that laboratories can't tell the difference. If you have uh, one of those poppy uh, seed uh, rolls, you might register positive for heroin because the poppy seeds have a little opium in them. Uh, these tests are about 95% accurate, so 5% of the people are getting inaccurate readings. So somebody, is, somebody in Boulder has found a way to sell cow piss through the mail. I think it's a major achievement of American ingenuity, and it shows I always thought Reagan was a total cynic, and he never would do anything except for his rich friends, but he actually has done something for small business. There are quite a few of these places selling guaranteed drug-free urine now. None of them say human urine. They're getting it all from cows. And uh, this is a great boon to little businesses. Little businesses are springing up everywhere. The only problem is one of these days, some poor bastard is going to be called in by his employer, and they're going to be told, you passed the drug test. And he'll say, well, of course, I wouldn't lower myself to using anything illegal. Say, yeah, and the boss will say, yes, but unfortunately, you've got foot and mouth disease, and we're going to have to shoot you before you infect the rest of the herd. <laughs> You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And that lovely voice that you just heard is the voice of the one and only Black Beauty of BB's Bungalow, who just recently uh, posted her 50th podcast. And uh, since BB does a podcast once a month, that means she's been at it for four years and two months at least with BB's bungalow. But uh, she goes back even farther, right, to the beginning of the dopefiend.co.uk podcast uh, network. 
And BB, we really appreciate everything you've done. I know you have a, a heavy work schedule, so it's hard to get these in. And I guess we should also thank uh, Iolite Knight and Niles and Hermit Girl and uh, your other cast of characters for filling in for you from time to time and uh, uh, entertaining us. But uh, BB, for everything you've done for the entire community, uh, well, we can't thank you enough. Uh, our our love and best wishes go out to you and your whole team down there in Australia, and uh, we look for. Uh, many, many more podcasts coming out from Down Under. Thank you again, Bibi. Now, in Joe Metheny's program notes for the uh, lecture that we just heard, he wrote, Now enjoy this audio, which I would say is long overdue in coming to light, but all signs seem to point to its being exactly on time. And Joe wrote that in 2009, since which time Jesus has uh, jumped yet again and again, I believe. And in regards to... Uh, Bob's jumping Jesus theory, well, consider this. At the end of the year 1994, when this was actually recorded, there were not yet even 3,000 websites online. Today, there are over 255 million. Holy jumping Jesus! (laughs) Now, that's a lot of information that's become available to a huge number of people in a very short amount of time. And when you recall what Wilson just now had to say about what happened during previous great information jumps, well, it's no wonder that the Occupy movement is now a worldwide phenomenon. As you know, I've set up an email account for you and our other fellow saloners to send in your own comments about Occupy Wall Street and what has now become the worldwide Occupy movement. And uh, that address is lorenzo at occupysalon.us. So uh, if you have any comments that you'd like to add to this discussion, or even better yet, an audio clip, I'd be more than happy to receive it. Now, the first person to send me a message at that address was Local Man from Canada, who sent me a link to a story about Occupy Calgary, in which the uh, very breathless writer claimed that the city is now going to have to spend $40,000 to repair the damages done by a couple dozen tents. Here's a part of what Local Man had to say about that. How a bunch of tents on grass have caused $40,000 worth of damage is beyond us. Many have said that we have absolutely no reason to occupy because our economy and employment is quite good relative to the United States. I am even quite certain that this will remain the case should the following monstrosity be built. And uh, the monstrosity that he uh, then sent me some links to, of course, is the Keystone Pipeline that thousands of people were demonstrating about in Washington, D.C. last week as they surrounded the White House. And by the way, the latest word is that Obama now is uh, planning on putting off his approval of the pipeline until after the next election. So my guess is that he's uh, probably going to campaign on the promise that he won't approve it. And then, since he's already lied about almost every other thing he's ever promised, I assume he'll prove it once he's safely back in office for another four years. But, hey, that's just my opinion. Now, Local Man then goes on to say, Even if we ignore climate change, the peak oil crisis cannot be avoided. This pipeline simply should not be built. I realize that my standard of living is directly correlated to oil, However, should we build this pipeline and further kick the can down the road for the energy crisis, we will simply make the inevitable decline much worse. The Keystone XL pipeline is, of course, not the only reason I chose to occupy. But it is important to understand. Every day it seems that the movement gets stronger, the movement of consciousness. I hope to lose the fear that still resides in my heart. 
And uh, that's really one of the things that in many ways the Occupy movement has already done for us. We've begun to regain hope and lose fear. You know, it's time to put despair to rest and uh, get on with the work of building a better world. And as Local Man pointed out, it's time to stop kicking the can to uh, down the road to generations that will be coming after us. We are the Genesis generation, and at long last we have finally begun to act like it. Now the next message I received came from Metal Never Dies One, who I think joins us each week from Australia. Here's part of what he has to say. Hey man, just listen to your latest podcast 287. Very good, my friend. Long-time listener and just started networking this year and sorting out life, if there is such a thing. First, thanks for doing what you do, man. I've listened to countless hours of these podcasts, and I believe this is it. Exactly your last thoughts in the, in the podcast. Heaps I want to say, but I'm not great at multitasking, so we'll mail, join, and interact with you more as time goes on. By the way, I'm Metal Never Dies one on Twitter and am following you. So get them cast links out there in Twitterland, dude. We really are starting to coalesce as far as consciousness and awareness of our friends being our neighbors goes, if that makes sense. The quickening has begun. Retweeted the link today as I think it's important to listen to Terrence from back then. Knowing his slant already from listening, reading and watching heaps of his work, and then bringing that in with today's mayhem makes perfect sense to a psychonaut. I would like to know where this point in time fits in with Time Wave Zero right now, as novelty is at its biggest peak in my lifetime since 9-11, and I'm just about to turn 41. I figure the knowledge you have imparted to me via others' contributions and your own have been integral. I have used it and helped others using it a lot. So what comes around goes around. Back to the funny farm now anyway, and thanks again, my friend, on the hyperdimensional plane. Cheers from Australia. Well, thanks for that medal. I really appreciate your comments. Next, I received an email from Adam M., who says in part, In terms of Occupy Wall Street, I believe, as you also expressed, that this could be the beginning of the big shift. On 9-11, after the buildings went down, one of my high school teachers said something like, This will change the world forever, and all of our lives will be impacted somehow in a societal way. Clearly she was right, looking at the changes since then, especially in terms of a general sense of awareness among people, even if they are not fully aware or misinformed. There is a group mind and a collectivity that creates a powerful public force. I believe that the energy behind Occupy Wall Street is extremely strong, and I have high hopes that it will continue to bring a lot of people together for quite some time. I sent along an audio collage titled, It's About Time, and I would be honored if you were to listen to it, let alone play it on a podcast. I understand you probably get tons and tons of music, but when I heard the call for opinions on Occupy Wall Street and happened to be in the process of writing this song, I figured I wouldn't ignore the synchronicity. In one of Terence's talks in which he states that culture is not your friend, he speaks of the possibility for a kind of human paradise and the fact that we have the potential, but we are led by the least caring people and we don't fight back. Someone from the audience asked, how do we fight back? And Terence's answer was, art. So here's a piece of art as my stamp on Occupy Wall Street, and I hope you enjoy it. Well, I agree with you, Adam, and uh, at the end of today's podcast, I'll be playing your song. 
Next, I received an email from Joe R., who recommends reading The Empathic Civilization, The Race to Global Consciousness in a World in Crisis by Jeremy Rifkin. And then he goes on to say, As an aside, you may be amused to know the details of my purchase last March of an audio copy of The Genesis Generation. A good friend of mine has been a fan of the salon for some time and had been recommending it to me also for some time. I happened to be in Oaxaca last March and was about to undertake one of those grueling all-night bus rides that is sometimes necessary because there is no other option. I saw the audiobook on your website and thought that that might be just the thing to occupy the sleepless night ahead. I had no idea what the setting of the story would be, so imagine my surprise and delight as I listened to it on the way to Palenque. (laughs) And if you've uh, read or listened to the Genesis Generation, you know that it begins in Palenque, which is why Joe found it to be such a synchronicity. Uh, As do I, Joe, as do I. Also, uh, I received a message from Lauren, who had this to say. Hey, Lorenzo, I just got finished listening to podcast number 287, and I wanted to share with you a connection I have made between Occupy Wall Street and Calamon's predictions. And uh, she's talking about uh, Calamon's predictions about the Mayan calendar, which he saw ending, uh, well, just recently. I And uh, Lauren goes on. I have been following the cycles he set out with more and more interest as the new century has progressed. Not really subscribing, however, to the more new-agey end-times responses, but more interested in how world events could correlate. It would take a much longer post for me to set out the details for you, but if you look at the timing he proposed and the way the protest movement has progressed, especially since Tahir Square, I think I can strongly argue that we are now in an entirely different world than the one we had at the beginning of 2011, one in which things are definitely slipping out of the hands of corporate control. Eight days into this new world, I think the momentum is back towards a humanity that is attuned and acts in the interests of Gaia, with all of the implications that entails. It is almost as if we have collectively given birth to a new consciousness of ourselves. I am constantly reminded of the Buddhist doctrine of Sangha. The Buddha is the Sangha, and likewise, the Christ is the community. It's kind of amusing, really, when you think of it in this way, because then Christ has risen, only not in the way the Christian mainstream expected it. Look at how many of them are now trying to crucify it. Chortle. (laughs) And I chortle, too. Well, uh, Lauren, you make an excellent point, and uh, barring anything more revolutionary than the Occupy movement taking place uh, by, uh, say, December 21st of 2012, well, I'm going to have to go along with your assessment and say that Kalaman may have figured out the correct date for a change in human consciousness after all. And your assessment also fits my own model, which uh, is that maybe 500 years or so from now, historians will look back and see the decades on either side of 2012 as a pivotal time in the affairs of humans. And so the 2012 or 2011 dates will uh, be significant in that way. But right now, it's uh, very difficult to argue that Kalaman wasn't right. And uh, all in all, it's uh, quite interesting, don't you think? And uh, finally, I received an email from Thomas Jefferson. (laughs) At least that's what his email address read. And uh, here's what old Tom had to say. I've written a little something for the Occupy movement. I would love to hear you read it. Signed, The Ghost of Thomas Jefferson. And the essay is titled, The Declaration of Desperation. 
Well, uh, thanks for that, Tom. Uh, it is okay to call you Tom, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> well, I'm afraid that it's uh, just too long to read here. However, it's uh, quite an interesting takeoff on the Declaration of Independence, and I'll link to the website where you can read it for yourself. Now, I've got a lot more Occupy news from other sources that I'd like to read right now, uh, such as the story about a second military man, a veteran of both the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, who was brutally beaten by the Oakland police and who was hospitalized with a ruptured spleen, among other problems. It was an unprovoked and vicious beating administered by a police force that is quite obviously out of control. Our hearts go out to you, Oakland. Hopefully this movement will eventually result in you being able to replace your entire police force with women and men who actually care about the people they are paid to protect. And the same goes for several other cities where cops are behaving quite badly. Like the cops in D.C. who let a hit-and-run driver in a white Lexus, D.C. license plate number 8AJ8425, go free without even having to roll down his heavily tinted windows after running over several demonstrators. This was uh, obviously some big-time politician or corporate lobbyist that the police were protecting. The cops did arrest two demonstrators at the scene, however. No wonder the demonstrators in cities like Washington, Oakland, Nashville, Philadelphia, Atlanta, and other sites of police brutality are hardening their positions. Now, I'm sorry that you've just had to listen to me reading all of this information right now when it would be much better to be playing some of the sound bites that I've recorded over the past week. And even though this podcast is already over a sensible time limit, I still do want to hear a few other voices as well. But don't worry, I'm not going to play all 20 hours of material that I've recorded this past week. I'm only going to play a few brief sound bites uh, just to let you hear some of the other voices that are being raised all over the world right now. To begin with, I'm going to play part of a talk that Michael Rupert gave uh, recently, which deals with police brutality. It was kind of a long talk, and I'll try to find a link to it that I can post with the program notes. Uh, For here, I've cut it down to uh, just the last part. The first part is uh, one in which he gives his police credentials, which are very considerable, in case you aren't already familiar with his work. Uh, Michael Rupert is uh, now an author and investigator who I met during the early months after 9-11, and uh, I personally find him to be a very solid citizen, very reputable. Uh, And here's what he had to say to the police. I want to deliver a message to all the police officers around the world who have been supportive, to all the police officers around the world who have been helpful, who have shown restraint, who have expressed sympathy for the people that you are charged with protecting. I especially want to acknowledge the San Francisco police officers who wept in, in, in front of members of Occupy San Francisco as they were ordered to and complied with the orders to take the personal property, steal it confiscated from members of Occupy San Francisco. I want to give this message to every police officer anywhere in the world who sees what's being directed at us in this movement and feels sick at heart and sick at their stomach. Thank you. We recognize that and I, you know, I, I'm aware of many messages where uh, the Occupy movement has had good positive encounters with police and I want to thank you for that. We appreciate that deeply. Now, you may be doing, those of you who fall into that category, may be doing your job, doing your duty, and it may be your sense of job security that keeps you doing things which you find disagreeable. But I have some news for you. 
At my website, CollapseNet, for more than the last year, we have documented month in and month out how hundreds of thousands of police officers around the world have been laid off due to budget cuts and austerity. In case you haven't noticed, the world economy is not getting any better. It can only go down from here. This is the collapse of human industrial civilization, and budgets are going to continue to be cut. So when the budget cuts come, you can bet that the first to be let go will be those showing any signs of honor, of compassion, of remorse, showing any signs of humanity, because the only ones that the infinite growth monetary paradigm can afford to pay will be the most ruthless, the most brutal, the sociopathic, and the psychotic. And the pressures are going to increase on both sides for you if you're in a very tough spot because the world situation is going to deteriorate and the crowds with Occupy Wall Street are going to grow. And on the other side, the budget cuts are going to be looming and you're going to be forced into a place where you have to go inside, on, sometimes on a daily basis, an, hour, an hourly basis, or a minute-to-minute -minute basis, and ask yourself, can I do this anymore? And there's going to be a lot of you who are going to be honorable like the warriors I've tried to talk to you about today who are not going to be able to do it, and you'll stop, you'll quit, and you'll join us, and you will bring a warrior's power and a warrior's honor with you when you do. To everybody out there, to every police officer in the world who's getting off on this, who likes swinging the stick, who likes wearing the gloves and pulling hair and running people over and pepper spraying people and beating us, to all of you guys, I got news for you too. You're the bad guys. And we live in an age now that's back to where it was in Vietnam. In Vietnam, we had cameras belonging to what was then a pretty free and independent media, bringing us back all the horrible images of the war, all of the crimes and the carnage. But we don't have any kind of a press like that anymore, but what we do have is what you see right now. We have cameras everywhere, we have eyes everywhere, and we have means everywhere to capture and to communicate and to put up in front of the whole world every time one of you, without honor, nakedly brutalizes and attacks an unarmed civilian exercising the right to freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. So let me close this message by repeating the words of Sergeant Shamar Thomas. It is not honorable to attack unarmed civilians who carry no weapons, who have no intent or ability to harm you. It is not honorable to suppress the right to freedom of speech and freedom of association. You carry your badges and your guns and your authority because you are charged with protecting the innocent. We are the innocent. You are working for the criminals. And uh, now here are a few comments by some of the other people who have shared their voices on one of the live video streams that are coming from Occupy locations all over the country. I've been here at NYU, and I came down to Occupy Wall Street basically to, um, to learn, see what everyone is here for, what brought everyone here together, um, find out what everyone's interests are and their position on a lot of issues. And uh, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing for the country because there's people here who are interested in starting a conversation that um, that really uh, 
that hasn't gotten a lot of attention the past decade, maybe the past decade or two, you know, people are starting to ask questions more about the state of um, America, our identity as Americans, you know, and I think there's a little bit of a conflict there, and people are re-looking uh, at the issue and um, asking questions. I think that can only be a good thing. What brought me here is that uh, in the 25 plus years that I've been here in this country, this is probably the first time that I've heard uh, that I've seen a serious movement uh, calling for demanding economic justice. Uh, it's incredible. Um, it almost feels like uh, in the United States people are moving or sort of uh, <clears throat> the blinders are lifting somewhere, the one way or the other. Say why you're here tonight. Yeah, I'm, I'm Sean. <laughs> I'm Alex. Um, I'm here because I think it's important for us to disrupt the constant stream of capitalism that just like consumes our lives. Yeah. Yeah. How do you see it negatively affecting your life? Uh, how do I, in every possible way? <laughs> um, um, I mean, I'm like I'm a student and like I have like massive student loans and like I'm not able to like pay for college and it's like a constant battle of like. I'm a first-generation college student, and like, should I like change the pace of like my parents' legacy and like go to school and like have all this debt to get a degree, or should I like just like not? Do that? I don't know. It's like a lot of conflicts around that. Um, that's like just one way yeah. that like personally affects me. About you, Alex. Um, I work at an organization that works to help stop the connection between homeless youth and foster care youth, and so I, it affects me daily <laughs> that I work in social services and I don't get paid enough and that my students are on the brink of homelessness constantly. And it was really great today to see a lot of my coworkers um, and my students walking around. And then I'm also here because I was part of the feminist queer block Cade that came and walked through, um, and that felt really good um, because, you know, queers, as queers were oppressed in really distinct and interesting ways, queers and trans people, so I think that's really important to also talk about. Have you seen um, a lot of support in the queer trans community for this, this particular movement? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. I mean, I think that there's like su both support, like, and criticism mm -hmm. in that, like, a lot of like queer and trans people like don't necessarily feel safe and they can in the marches. Yeah. Which is why we are like band together and like why we have like a queer and trans block today. Um, but like, it's it's really hard to like advocate for like issues that like specifically affect like the way that capitalism specifically affects like queer and trans people and like sex workers um, because people are, like it's it's divisive. And, like I've heard that over and over again at GAs. Yeah, that's been happening a lot on like the, even the Facebook event for um, the blockade. There were people who were saying like you shouldn't talk about you know how trans people are oppressed via healthcare and things like that because that's like a special issue. Right. Um, and so we're here together as like a huge group to say that we're not a special interest issue and that yeah. the Occupy. The Occupy movement has enough room for all of our differences. That's why we're a leftist movement. Right. We're not the right with one single, you know, we want money right. stance. <laughs> we have, we want lots of things, and we think that capitalism is at the root of patriarchy, white supremacy, and all these other issues. From California. From California, my old stomping ground when I was a youth. Yes. And, uh, sir, what do you... What brought you here? Are you uh, visiting New York City? Yeah, I'm visiting, yeah. And, and I've been visiting all sorts of occupations all over the world. Really? That's oh, right. Oh, that's remarkable. You're luckier yes. than me. 
That's right. I'm, yeah. I'm I may well be. I may well be. What Very you, privileged. What do you oh, think of what you see of these occupations, thank you, thank you. and what are your hopes and dreams for the nation and the world? Well, Speaking to the mic. Oh uh, well, I That's think the that these occupations represent a oh, great new movement. Very similar, Barcelona, as recently in Brazil, Bahia, in Salvador, in Colombia, all sorts of occupations everywhere. New a new politics, grassroots politics. How do you see the when you were here at uh, Ground Central in this movement? What do you think uh, of these other occupations? should draw from what exists here do you well, are they organized in your view is everybody doing their job yeah oh yeah they're definitely doing their job and they are very inspired by wall street very inspired yep but of course some of them began even before occupy wall street yes in europe so it's yeah. it's, it's, it's reverberating around the world interesting isn't it yes very interesting well you good luck good luck thank you sir i'll be following thank you for stopping in I don't know how long you've been here, but... This is my third time down here. It's his third time down here. Please uh, speak to the people. Let us know your thoughts, your dreams for yourself, for your family, for the country, for the world. Oh, wonderful. And I'm sure your opinion is a great one. Well, my, my hope, my dreams, if you will, are to see a, a world where my children can live in a world that's free, justified, and equal. I want to see, I, I have a lot of hope in this movement. I believe this movement is a movement that whose time has come. I, don't, I believe it's way beyond Zuccotti Park and Liberty Park by now. I, I believe it's in the hearts and minds of people and this movement can never, ever die. And the final clip I'd like to play for you comes from the respected journalist, Bill Moyers. So I'm here as both a citizen and a journalist to thank you for all you have done, to salute you for keeping the faith, and to implore you to fight on during this crisis of hope that now grips our country. The great American experience in creating a different future together, this voluntary union for the common good, has been flummoxed by a growing sense of political impotence, what the historian Lawrence Goodwin has described as a mass resignation of people who believe the dogma of democracy on a superficial level, but who no longer believe it privately. There has been, he writes, a decline in what people think they have a political right to aspire to a decline of individual self-respect on the part of millions of people. You can understand why that is. We hold elections knowing they are unlikely to produce the policies favored by a majority of Americans. We speak, we write, we advocate, and those in power, Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives, turn deaf ears and blind eyes to our deepest aspirations. We petition, we plead, we even pray, yet the earth that is our commons and should be passed on in good condition to coming generations continues to be despoiled. We invoke the strain in our national DNA that attests to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as the produce of political equality, 
Yet private wealth multiplies even as public goods are beggared. And the property qualifications for federal office that the framers of the Constitution expressly feared as an unseemly veneration of wealth are now openly in force. And the common denominator of public office, including for our judges, is a common deference to cash. So if belief in the dogma of democracy seems only skin deep, there are reasons for it. During the great prairie revolt that swept the plains a century after the Constitution was ratified, the populist orator Mary Elizabeth Lease exclaimed, Wall Street owns the country. Our laws are the output of a system which clothes rascals in robes and honesty in rags. The parties lie to us and the political speakers mislead us because she said money rules. That was 1890 and those agrarian populists were boiling over with anger that the corporations, banks, and government were conniving to deprive everyday people of their livelihood. They should see us now. John Boehner calls on the bankers, holds out his cup, and offers them total obeisance from the House majority if only they will fill it. That's now the norm, and they get away with it. Barack Obama criticizes bankers as fat cats, then invites them to dine at a pricey New York restaurant where the tasting menu runs to $195 a person. And that's the norm. And they get away with it. As we speak, the president has raised more money from banks, hedge funds, and private equity managers than any Republican candidate, including Mitt Romney. Let's name it for what it is. Democratic deviancy defined downward. Politics today, and there are honorable men and women in it, but politics today is little more than money laundering in the trafficking of power and policy, fewer than six degrees of separation from the spirit and tactics of Tony Soprano. Why? Why New York's Zuccotti Park is occupied is no mystery. Reporters keep scratching their heads and asking, why are you here? But it's as clear as the crash of 2008. They are occupying Wall Street because Wall Street has occupied America. I Relish the sign a woman was carrying at a fraternal march in Iowa the other day, one of those Occupy that has grown up, have grown up around the country. It read, I can't afford to buy a politician, so I bought this sign. 
I'm going to jump several pages over to connect that to what you have worked so hard on and I've been trying to report on, and that is the success of the plutocrats in ratifying with the Supreme Court their rule in its notorious Citizens United decision last year. Rarely have so few imposed such damage on so many. When five pro-corporate conservative judges gave artificial entities the same rights of free speech as living, breathing human beings, they told our corporate sovereigns, the sky's the limit in pouring your money into political campaigns. And the Roberts Court today embodies the legacy of pro-corporate bias in justices determined to prevent democracy from acting as a break on excessive greed and power in the private sector. Let me be clear, wealth acquired under capitalism is and of itself no enemy of democracy, but wealth with political power, the power to shake off opportunities for others to rise is a proven danger. Thomas Jefferson had hoped that we shall crush in its birth the aristocracy of our moneyed corporations, which dare already to challenge the government to a trial of strength and to bid defiance to the laws of our country. James Madison feared that the spirit of speculation would lead to a government operating by corrupt influence, substituting the motive of private interest in place of public duty. Madison and Jefferson didn't live to see reactionary justices fulfill their worst fears. In 1886, the conservative court conferred the divine gift of life on the Southern Pacific Railroad. Never mind that the 14th Amendment declaring that no person should be deprived of life, liberty, or the pursuit of happiness without due process was enacted to protect the rights of freed slaves. The court decided to give the same rights of personhood to corporations that possessed neither a body to be kicked nor a soul to be damned. And for over half a century, the court would act as a guardian of privilege. It gutted the anti-Sherman Antitrust Act by finding a loophole for a sugar trust. It killed a New York state law limiting working hours, likewise a ban against child labor. It wiped out a law that set minimum wages for women and own and own decision after decision aimed at laws promoting the general welfare. The Roberts Court has picked up the mantle. Money first, the public second, if at all. The ink was hardly dry on the United Citizens' decision when the Chamber of Commerce, which occupies the very spot on which Daniel Webster once lived and sold diplomatic offices for cash and took bribes to cover his debts, his wine, his mistresses, and his boats, is right at home there at 1615 <laughs> A Street. The Chamber of Commerce organized a covertly funded front and rained drones packed with missiles with cash into the 2010 campaigns. 
According to Ellen Miller's Sunlight Foundation, corporate groups spent $126 million in the fall of 2010 while hiding the identities of the donors. Another corporate cover group, the American Action Network, spent over $26 million of undisclosed corporate money in just six Senate races and 28 House elections. And Carl Rove's Crossroads GPS seized on Citizens United to raise and spend at least $27 million that NBC News said came from a small circle of extremely wealthy Wall Street hedge fund and private equity moguls all determined to water down financial reforms designed to prevent another collapse of the financial system. Jim Hightower has said it well. Today's proponents of corporate plutocracy have simply elevated money itself above votes, establishing cold, hard cash as the real coin of political power. So it's no wonder to me as a journalist or a citizen that so many Americans have felt that sense of political impotence that Lawrence Goodman described as the mass resignation of people who believe in the dogma of democracy at the superficial level but whose hearts no longer burn with the conviction that they are part of the deal. And I will tell you that against such odds Discouragement comes easily. But if the generations before us had given up, slaves would still be waiting on these tables. Women would still be turned away from the voting booth on election days. And workers would still be committing a crime if they organized. So don't ever, as Ralph said, don't ever count the people out. During the last quarter of the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution created fantastic wealth at the top and excruciating misery at the bottom. Embattled citizens rose up and fought back. Into their hearts, wrote the progressive journalist from Kansas, William Allen White, had come a sense that their civilization needed recasting, that their government had fallen into the hands of self-seekers that a new relation should be established between the haves and the have-nots. Not content to wring their hands and cry, woe is us, everyday citizens researched the issues, organized to educate their neighbors, held rallies, made speeches, petitioned and canvassed and marched and marched and marched again. They plowed the field and planted the seeds, sometimes in blood-soaked soil, that 20th century leaders would then use to restore the general welfare as a pillar of American democracy. They laid down the markers of a civilized society, legally ordained minimum wages, child labor laws, Workmen's safety and compensation laws, pure foods and safe drugs, Social Security, Medicare, and rules that promote competitive markets over monopolies and cartels. They showed us that democracy doesn't begin at the top. It begins at the bottom when flesh and blood human beings rekindle the patriot's dream. The patriot's dream? 
Arlo Guthrie, remember? It's the star-spangled banner of Zuccotti Park. And in every public place I've seen where Americans long for justice. It's the anthem of public citizen. Living now, here but for fortune placed by fate's mysterious schemes, who'd believe that we're the ones asked to rekindle the patriot dreams? Arise, sweet destiny, time runs short. All of your patience has heard their retort. Hear us now, for alone we can't seem to rekindle the patriot's dream. Can you hear the words being whispered? All along the American stream, tyrants freed, the just imprisoned, try to rekindle the patriot's dream. Ah, but perhaps too much is being asked of too few. You and your children, with nothing to do, hear us now. For alone, we can't rekindle the patriot dreams. Who, in these cynical times, when democracy is on the ropes and the great power of wealth concentration pounds and pounds and pounds the American body politic who still believes such a radical thing look around Who still believes such a radical dream? Well, I'd say that about 99% of us still believe, and uh, now we're actually doing something about it. I'm going to close today's podcast now, but there is one last thing that I'd like to pass on. Over the past six-plus years that I've been doing these podcasts, there have been quite literally uh, well over 100 people who have said to me, I really wish that I'd lived during the 60s. Those were really inspiring times. Well, my friend, if you are now under 30, I'd be willing to bet that one day, uh, long after I'm gone most likely, your grandchildren are going to come up to you and say, What did you do during the Occupy Revolution, Grandpa? What did you do during the Occupy Revolution, Grandma? And how are you going to answer that question? Are you going to say, Well, since I missed all of the excitement of the 60s, I figured that I'd missed the boat. I just didn't realize that 2011 was going to be such a pivotal year, and so I set it out on the sidelines. I never even made it for a single hour at one of the Occupy Street Corner demonstrations. I just sat the whole thing out. Is that what you're going to tell your grandchildren? Or are you going to tell them about how you participated in the movement? And let me tell you... I know a little about the 60s. You know, it was during that decade that I graduated from college and also did a tour of duty with the Navy in Vietnam. 
I know what the 60s were like from both sides of those times, and let me tell you, I'm predicting that 50 years from now, no one will still be talking about the 60s because what is going down right now is going to make the 60s seem like the dark ages. So, make a sign, stand on a street corner, visit an Occupy site, start a blog, get your friends involved. It doesn't matter what you do, but do something. Because, you know, we're all in this together right now and we really need your help. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. And I'm going to leave you right now with a tune called It's About Time by fellow Saloner Adam M. Big banks complaining they're being unfairly targeted by politicians eager to seize on Occupy Wall Street movement's energy. Now bankers are threatening to make it very expensive for politicians to support the protests. Our fourth story tonight, Wall Street donors saying they will not support Democrats who side with OWS. Fuck you! Get out! greed. Of course, none of us are greedy. It's only the other fellow who's greedy. <laughs> Individuals pursuing their separate interests. The great achievements. You know, I think you're taking a lot of things for granted. And just tell me where in the world you find these angels who are going to organize society for us. Well, I don't even trust you to do that.